Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Dr. John Arden. This was a fascinating conversation. John is a psychologist with over 40 years of experience, both providing psychological services and directing mental health programs. He's also gone into an intensive exploration of neuropsychology, which has inspired him to integrate neuroscience and psychotherapy into a new form of therapy known as brain-based therapy. Essentially, he's merged the biological and the psychological. He's the author of 15 books, including Rewire Your Brain, The Brain Bible, and Mind Brain Gene. John, can you tell me a little bit about your background, the work you do, and how you got into it? Well, I've, I've been a psychologist for uh, roughly about uh, 40 years and been in the mental health system for over that. Um, and uh, so I've been uh, uh, part of the delivery of, uh, of mental health services in a number of different uh, formats, community mental health. And, and uh, then by 1990, I um, uh, started working at Kaiser Permanente in Northern California. And um, roughly about two years ago, I retired from that. But the, the last portion of that time was to uh, put together one of the largest mental health training programs in, in the country, in these 24 medical centers in Northern California. Uh, and the reason I'm bringing that up is the, the focus for uh, our training of these roughly about 150 interns and postdoc psychology residents was around integrated um, um, mental health services. In other words, how can we make sense of all of what we've been researching over the last oh, 50 years or so around what goes on in the brain, what goes on in therapy, what goes on with uh, healthcare, and make it all sensible and um, understandable to our clients and make the services uh, more useful in general. That sounds absolutely awesome. What were some of the things that you discovered through this process? Well, the, uh, early on, uh, I could say that when I uh, began uh, as a young mental health professional, um, there was this uh, blizzard, I call it, of mental health uh, or rather psycho psychology uh, theories. Uh, there were all these different types of therapies. And, you know, it's almost like every week there was a new type of therapy with a guru uh, out there for that type of therapy. And and over the, the course of roughly about 40 years, uh, I've seen so many different styles of therapy come and go, like they're fads. Uh, and so what we're now uh, focusing on is how to integrate all those uh, uh, perspectives uh, and look for the common denominators among them. In other words, uh, many of these uh, ways of helping people uh, are similar, uh, but the language is different. So what we're looking at right now is what are the common denominators among them and how are they relevant to uh, the science related to um, the immune system, neuroscience, epigenetics, uh, how all those factors and all those dimensions are interrelated. So mental health in the 21st century is really about integration of all of what we've learned before. That makes a lot of sense. For somebody who's listening to this and, and doesn't have a medical background, like you said that uh, people have a bunch of different approaches and 
they would be they were similar, but they'd have different language uh, around them. Can you describe an example or two of that? Sure. You know, uh, uh, let me just throw out some terms that I'm sure that people uh, are somewhat familiar with that that aren't in the psychology world. You know, there there were different um, schools of psychology. You know, uh, some of them uh, related to the work that Freud and others and Carl Jung and and others uh, developed. You know, then they were looking at uh, deep insights and unconscious dynamics and all that. And that was one big school. Then there was another big school, and they were the behaviorists, and they were looking not about the mind, but rather what a person's behavior is like. So they changed the the uh, modification paradigms, and you know, I'm sure people have heard behavioral modification as as a term. Then there was another group that no, they were looking at cognition. Cognition basically is thinking patterns, and how you change your thinking patterns might change your emotions. And then oh, by the 1980s, a whole bunch of other uh, groups uh, uh, began to develop around um, what we understand as emotion. How does emotion develop? Uh, and then by the 90s, uh, in the so-called decade of the brain, we started to make sense of early experience attachment from a brain-based perspective. How does your early, uh, how do your early attachment experiences change your brain in such a way that uh, uh, your response patterns to interpersonal uh, communication might change, uh, uh, in, including uh, your um, receptivity to uh, interpersonal, deep, intimate relationships? How uh, a person's early experience might make it more difficult for them to uh, engage in these rather challenging uh, intimate kind of relationships. And then by the next decade, now I'm talking about after the turn of the century, then we're talking about the immune system and how epigenetics occur. In other words, uh, how you can turn on and off genes based on your lifestyle, how that affects your brain, how your um, thinking and emotional patterns change your brain and change your uh, gene pattern, uh, gene expression rather. So now we're talking about all of it together in this integration. I want to come back to this, but you had talked about intimacy could be a, a person can struggle to have intimacy later in life because they have um, issues early on. What would be some examples of that? Well, well, let's take, uh, uh, first of all, all the psychological research related to attachment. Attachment is basically, you know, how you bond with or don't bond with your uh, uh, principal caregivers, let's say your parents, uh, during the first couple years of your life. So there are a lot of psychological theories beginning with the psychodynamic people roughly about 100 years ago, all the way to the actual research instead of uh, theory in the beginning in the 19th 60s all the way uh, into the 80s. We call that attachment uh, research. And people like uh, John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth did a lot of research on different types of attachment patterns. And so uh, let's uh, just touch on a few. So there, uh, as identified, there are um, uh, patterns uh, uh, described as secure attachment, 
or uh, insecure attachment. And insecure attachment comes in many forms. You know, there's avoidant type of attachment or, or uh, ambivalent attachment or disorganized attachment. So people that have insecure attachment, in other words, uh, their bonding with their parents uh, was uh, interrupted a number of times by uh, maybe you know the demands that your parents might have been experiencing the challenges or the stresses that they might have been experiencing would result would resulted in maybe their lack of availability and and lack of constant um, um, nurturing uh, so uh, you then would develop a uh, uh, insecure attachment that would then result in maybe some difficulty connecting with other people later on. And uh, sure enough, by the 1990s, a lot of these attachment uh, researchers started to take a look at adult attachment styles. In fact, um, uh, a couple of them were um, uh, uh, researchers that worked with Mary Ainsworth, who I mentioned before, like Mary Main at University of California, uh, Berkeley, uh, started to develop a uh, way of measuring attachment styles for adults that turned out to be very similar to the attachment styles that a child develops. Uh, so let's just take one. I mentioned avoidant attachment for uh, uh, children uh, is very similar to the dismissing style for an adult. And let me describe what that might be. Uh, so the dismissing style for an adult might play out to be uh, uh, something like this. Let's say you're doing couples therapy. I know, I know your listeners aren't doing couples therapy, but let's say that you go to couples therapy and you, uh, or you hear about it. Um, and uh, here you have a, let's say, a, a general uh, conventional heterosexual couple and the, and the, and the wife says to the couples therapist, you know, he just doesn't get it. You know, I want him there for me. And, um, uh, he says, what do you mean there for me? I'm there for you every single night. I go to work, I come back home. Uh, and what do you want me to quit my job to be there for you and be there 24 hours a day? And she says, no, I want you there, there. And she, uh, he goes, there, there, what are you talking about there, there? And the couples therapist goes, well, you know, um, that, uh, uh, you know, that's rather interesting what you're saying. Uh, I, I'm wondering, what, what were your parents like? And he says, I don't know, they were fine, I guess. And she goes, well, tell me a little bit about your childhood. And he goes, I really don't remember much of your, my childhood. And uh, she, of course, gets her maybe her education from the movies instead of uh, graduate school. <laughs> and she goes, "Ooh, maybe there's some repressed uh, thoughts and, and feelings that you have when, in fact, she really doesn't understand the memory systems. And she doesn't understand that there wasn't much emotional dimension to his childhood. In other words, his parents were just there. They took care of him, but there wasn't much emotional connection. So now he's an adult. And when his wife asks him to be there, he thinks being there is just his body, not his emotional availability or uh, curiosity about what she might think or, or whatever. So he has an avoidant type of attachment. Now, let me equate that to neuroscience. 
interestingly, avoidant attachment styles is related to overactivity in the right prefrontal cortex and underactivity in the left. So generally people that are avoidant tend to avoid anything that might stir up their emotions. And they tend to be more anxious and more depressed. And so here this avoidant attachment style worked pretty good, you could say, in childhood and maybe even later on because they avoided things that make them stir up. But it really didn't work so well because now that person is less able to have uh, deep inter interpersonal and intimate relationships. Yeah, I, I find it fascinating. The other thing that comes up as you talk about this is is in conversations I've had with other men, um, I haven't really dug into childhood in the same way, but I found very similar patterns with traumas as adults. So they're dating somebody, they're emotionally open, I, um, something happens, they close down, they they find that women are more receptive when they're more closed down and they stay closed down until they meet somebody they really like and find out that they're disconnected um, because the relationship doesn't work out and they have to go through a process of rediscovery. Um, or maybe they had some other sort of like traumatic experience that caused them to emotionally shut down. But I, I see this this all the time. I, like I'll ask men, what do you feel? And they'll talk about what they think. I was at dinner with a, a guy recently, a former client of mine, he's become a friend. And he was saying, he's like, I don't feel emotions. Um, and I just see this over and over and over. Is this something that you've come across in your work? Oh, sure. You know, there, there are many layers of uh, cultural um, uh, learning, you could say. Uh, uh, and you were describing uh, men in general. And it's, uh, you know, of course, in, in the United States, we have a fairly heterogeneous population. But nevertheless, men in, in general uh, have been, uh, or boys, have been trained to be less uh, um, attentive to their own emotions. However, we could say that your generation, certainly mine, you know, we were the, the pioneers and the baby boomers and, you know, in the 60s and 70s and all that. We were much more in touch with our emotions, some of us. And now your generation, our, our kids, uh, are more in touch with our emotions, depending on where you are. So uh, basically what you were describing, uh, uh, you know, with your cl uh, client that became a friend and, and other people that you've talked about uh, was uh, their uh, difficulty with uh, getting in touch with uh, the nuances of emotion. And what I was describing earlier was uh, the, uh, the neuroscience around that, you know, avoidance and withdrawal is associated, strongly associated with, with a dominance of right hemisphere activation. And what we find is that uh, people that are right dominant, despite all the pop psychology about the right hemisphere being all the cool one and all that kind of silliness, uh, the, and it is important and, import, uh, you know, a very uh, useful and, and uh, talented part of our brain. However, if you're totally right dominant, you're going to be more avoidant. And whenever any uncomfortable emotion were to uh, emerge uh, for you, you might uh, avoid that. And as a res uh, response to that internal emotional avoidance, you're going to be less attentive to the emotional expression of other people uh, and sort of, as you say, shut down, overprotect yourself. 
and uh, become a little bit more rigid in your way of communicating uh, and maybe even become rather sexist, you know, and, and uh, uh, react in very stereotypical ways. Uh, I want to make sure I'm understanding this correctly. So one of the things I was told in school growing up, and I don't know if this is true or not, but uh, your dominant hand or foot it's usually the opposite side of your brain that's more dominant. Is that true or is that a myth? Well, you're, you're talking about what we call motor functions or, yeah. or um, so, and that's called contralateral um, association. So your left hemisphere controls the right side of your body and vice versa. But what I'm talking about is actually different from that, not motor functions, but what I'm talking about is the way that you, your cortex um, uh, responds to and interprets your environment. So your cortex, which means the bark, you know, the outside of your brain, really different from these, what is called the subcortical areas, subcortical meaning way below your, your cortex. So those motor functions that you're talking about, uh, uh, and maybe left-handers, right-handers, um, that doesn't necessarily, uh, correlate with these emotional patterns that we were talking about before. Okay. So, I mean, what I was told in school and we're talking about grade school and, and, uh, neuroscience has come a long way since then, <laughs> but, okay. but, but this idea, uh, that I was told by my teachers that like people who are left-handed tend to be more, uh, creative and people who are, well, that, that, that was the, that was actually what they said. People who are left-handed tend to be more creative. Yeah. There was and, a lot of uh, pop psychology about all that. So that's so not true. No. Okay. I mean, you know, maybe to a very slight, slight degree, who knows, but you know, there's really never any hard science demonstrating that fact. Let's take language, for example. Uh, language is lateralized to the left side. Why? Because the left hemisphere is more uh, uh, attentive to detail and uh, language is detail. And so when you learn something, you lateralize that information to the left side. Um, and the right side is much more global, uh, much more the larger gestalt, the big frame, the macro view and all that. And so let's take music, for example, one uh, overplayed pipes, pop psychology concept is that music is all on the right side. No. Well, let's say you go to, you know, near you Carnegie Hall and you listen to uh, this incredible symphony in somebody's uh, uh, or rather a violin concert. And the violinist has practiced, practiced, practiced before she is uh, ready for the performance. And now she's up there performing. Um, and let's say she's not anxious. And that's a real important part of it. And I'll, I'll get back to what that means in a minute. But when she's performing, what what hemisphere would you say is is uh, operative more uh, than the other? When she's performing? Yeah. I, I mean, I watched a video that showed like the entire brain lit up during uh, musical performance. I don't actually know the yeah, answer to that. And that's, that's great. That's a good point. That's a very good point. In, in many ways, we're really not talking about one hemisphere shutting down and the other one not. But what I'm trying to kind of get across is, is this, that routinized behavior, in other words, when you practice, 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 routine uh, uh, is more left hemisphere than right. The big global picture is more right, but now, remember I said that, uh, let's get back to whether or not she's anxious. Well, 
Uh, if she's super anxious and she starts blowing the performance <clears throat> or he, let's not pick up on a woman, but let's say he or that person is now so anxious, they, they lose the details of what they're trying to uh, per, uh, perform. Uh, now she gets a little bit more right hemisphere. In other words, she starts to uh, be overwhelmed by her feelings and uh, is not leaning into the performance. So we could say that leaning into and doing what you don't feel like doing is really much more left hemisphere than right. Now, <clears throat> let's take an anxious person. An anxious person generally avoids what makes them anxious. You know what that does is make the right hemisphere even more overactive. Or a depressed person uh, oftentimes withdraws when they're depressed. And so what we find is that people that are anxious and depressed basically avoid and withdraw. And you know what that does? It makes their whole problem much worse. And so we therapist types are always trying to get them to engage in um, what they don't feel like doing, so they eventually feel like doing it. And what that does is rewire their brain. But they have to get over this silly idea that avoidance and withdrawal is a good thing. This is awesome. Um, it's it's actually helping to clarify a lot of things for me. So there's a few few directions I want to go. One is... I guess I just, I'll ask as a question, are some people sort of predisposed towards using these parts of the brain where they're more likely with withdrawal or, or be depressed or have anxiety? And even if they are, um, what is the potential for them to be able to change the way that their brain is wired so that they're less anxious and less likely to withdraw? Well, um, it, it is true. Uh, that uh, we aren't all born with a so-called blank slate, you know, so this uh, English philosopher named John Locke came up with this idea of the tabula rasa, you know, everybody's uh, born with a blank slate and it's just learning from there. And then the later the uh, behaviorists in the psychology world uh, got into that idea. Well, the reality is that we're not all born with a blank slate. Uh, and there were in developmental psychology, there was this wide field called uh, um, temperament studies. And uh, some of the early studies were uh, uh, occurring right there in New York City, where you where you are. Uh, so that, uh, I don't know if you have a brother or a sister. Do you have a brother or sister? Three younger brothers. Three younger brothers. And, and my guess would be your parents were quite aware that each one of you had a different uh, emotional pattern initially. Before you started to, uh, you and, and uh, they, your siblings, started to adapt to the family environment. So, so we could say you each had a bit of a, a different temperament. However, it's nurtured nature. It's not all nature because there was a big debate, you know, maybe 50 years ago, you know, is it nurture or is it nature? Well, it turns out that it's nurtured nature because your other part of your question was, can the brain rewire? Yes, it can. And so what we find is that uh, people that might be a little bit more um, uh, anxious and, and um, have a tendency to um, uh, maybe overreact uh, in an anxious uh, sort of way, can learn to not 
uh, be like that. And let me give you my uh, example of my two sons. My, uh, they, were, they were different uh, from a temperament st- uh, perspective early on. Um, and um, my younger son uh, was a little bit more, um, I, I don't want to say anxious, but a little bit more cautious around interpersonal situations, whereas my younger son was much more gregarious. But, you know, now my younger son, the one that was a little bit more tenuous, he's able to talk in front of larger groups of people. Uh, and we, we, and partly because of the encouragement uh, and the um, the family atmosphere that we provided for him. So he uh, 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 use that sensitivity to be uh, attentive to uh, the feelings of other people uh, in a uh, fairly sophisticated way uh, instead of become an anxious person. Do you follow what I mean? So in other words, here we have uh, um, the opportunity to mold a person uh, through nurturing uh, that uh, results in uh, a whole different way of adapting to interpersonal situations, whether they be, uh, you know, just having friends and coworkers or intimate relationships based on what a person experiences uh, in these challenging uh, interpersonal um, situations, initially in a family, later friends and schools and work situations and so on. It makes a lot of sense um, based off a lot of the stuff I'm reading, conversations I'm having. One of my questions, one of the questions that comes up is, it's great that we can nurture somebody when they're younger, but what happens if somebody's 25 or 30 or 40 or whatever, they're listening to this podcast and trauma or whatever you want to call it, they didn't have the ability to nurture, they, they didn't nurture some of these things on their own. So now they're trying to figure out how can I be less stressed or how I can be more resilient to stress or how do I how can I develop a more, more positivity in my life? Cause it feels like everything's uh, falling apart or how, how do I develop more intimate social relationships? How do they nurture? I feel like safety is a part of that. Like uh, not being under some, a constant form of stress response, um, whether it's financial or psychological or social or home life. I feel like that's probably part of it, but how does somebody who didn't have these advantages growing up? I mean, I was at a dinner yesterday with a woman who has put on all these like really amazing conferences around the world uh around human dignity and she was talking about her upbringing and just all the trauma she's acquired and how it's beginning to surface and she's realizing that she needs she needs self-care and like how does a person when they're older begin to nurture these things for themselves well you know yeah and and so let me start with the the uh the broad picture and then hone in. I mean, there wouldn't be a field called uh, psychology if it weren't possible to help people (laughs) and uh, uh, therapy and all that. That doesn't mean that everybody that's been traumatized or have anxiety necessarily needs to go to a psychologist or some kind of therapist and all that. They can uh, learn to challenge themselves and uh, expand their comfort zone. So for example, somebody that's uh, now um, experiencing uh, a great deal of anxiety because they um, have experienced some recent traumas, let's uh, globalize this, for example. So in, in recent years, I've spent a lot of time in various countries and one place in in, uh, uh, that I was at was in the Middle East and we were training the aid workers of Syrian refugees in, in Jordan. And, you know, these people have been through terrible, terrible trauma. 
uh, and they're not the only ones, you know, you've had many genocides and, and terrible war situations in a variety of countries. Uh, you wouldn't want to be living in Afghanistan or Pakistan or Syria right now. Well, what do we do with these people once they get out of there? Well, there's a lot of hope. Uh, we could say certainly they have uh, adapted to, in a really um, uh, uncomfortable way, a terrible, terrible situation. So now their alarm system is really on, and now they're living in, I don't know, Ohio or Texas or you know Washington State or whatever, and um, you know providing they're not around a bunch of gun nuts blowing up a place. Uh, generally speaking, living in this country, United States that is, uh, is pretty – mellow. It's pretty, it's a nice place to live. Um, and uh, so their alarm system is on inappropriately. And what they've got to do now is relearn uh, how to um, live in a, a non-dangerous place, relatively speaking. Uh, and what that requires is for them to expand their comfort zone. So let me describe what I mean by that. Let's say now they come from Damascus and now they're living in Spokane or, you know, Boise or, or whatever. And uh, uh, they might um, initially find it really uh, anxiety provoking to go uh, to um, crowded areas like shopping malls or, or whatever. Uh, so they avoid it. You know what they do is they end up getting themselves even more anxious. So their job is now I mean, in terms of uh, helping them rewire their brain with encouragement from friends or therapist types is to incrementally expose themselves to those uh, larger um, social situations uh, so that gradually they enlarge their comfort zone. So what we're talking about here is actually a uh, activation of their left prefrontal cortex a little bit more because what they had been doing is they've been receding to an avoidant and withdrawal pattern over activating the right hemisphere. But by getting out there and they go, God, I don't really feel comfortable, you know, uh, but nevertheless, they do it. They kind of fake it until you make it, you know, uh, and what they're doing is gradually increasing the areas that they are comfortable, but they have to go through a period of being uncomfortable to become comfortable. You get the idea? Yeah. So, so how do you rewire your brain? You start doing stuff you don't not familiar with and you keep on doing it until you find it easier. Yeah, I, I get it. I mean, in our classes, and this is probably more like pop psychology explanation, we usually say good experiences lead to good expectations, good expectations lead to good emotions. And, um, very good. That's that's a wonderful way to put it in a, in a pithy way, uh, because you know as you experience more positive experiences, you have you anticipate more positive experiences, but it's based on your prior experience. But you can't get to the next experience without pushing yourself beyond where you were comfortable. Yeah, we also say the same thing about um, bad experiences. Bad experiences lead to bad expectations. Bad expectations lead to bad emotions, and then manifest in a series. They manifest into anxieties and a series of behaviors, procrastination, withdrawal, resentment, anger, frustration. Like, um, and then when people are going through those patterns, they, they don't get the experiences they need in order to grow. So it's sort of exactly. like cycles into, we usually say digresses into hopelessness. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, right. Let, let's let's take uh, the extreme example. Um, uh, and one frame is learn helplessness. And it, let's say you're in a domestic violence kind of uh, relationship, and and uh, no matter what you do, you, uh, uh, there's no way out. Uh, you're the uh, perpetrator, uh, the abuser, uh, cut you off from all family and friends and everything, and and uh, you you just expect the worst constantly. Uh, and the only thing you can do is just not set them off, so to speak. Um, and so bad experiences lead to bad experiences in that frame. Yeah, I find this absolutely fascinating. I mean, what I, I've discovered doing this for a decade now is that, and I kind of mentioned this to you at the beginning uh, before we started recording this podcast, is that that I had gotten into mental and emotional health and didn't didn't realize that's what I was getting into. And and when people ask me like, what's the biggest issues that, that people have when they're dating? And I usually say their anxieties is what keeps them from connecting. And but underneath that is trauma. And um, whether it's a major trauma or a series of major traumas or lots of minor, small traumas that they just kind of suppress and add it up. And it's really fascinating to hear you talk about just sort of explain some of the science science behind it and for us like what we try to do is we try to do exactly what you described when we're doing a, a workshop we'll practice touch for example and we'll role play over and over and over and over and have somebody do it a few hundred times and guys might not be comfortable with touch at all i was on the phone uh, with a client this morning who he had he, he didn't realize this was an issue until a woman went to touch his shoulder and he jumped and she goes oh sorry and he came to me that night and he, or the next night or whenever I saw him and said, hey, I realize this is an issue. And I said, what do you think it's tied to? And he goes, my abuse from my mom when I was a kid. And yeah. um, and so we had to do role play. I got, a, I got a woman who was willing to help and we just role played touch and, and helped to sensitize him uh, to touch, practice holding eye contact, practice touch, practice touch for longer periods of time because he'd hit these thresholds. He'd hold, a, he'd hold someone's hands. He'd hold this woman's hands and look in to her eyes and at 10 seconds he might start to um, start to shake or start to get nervous or want to break eye contact and we try to incrementally increase that threshold and now he's doing having a much it was a, we got to got him to the point where on a first date he could hold somebody's hand or kiss them and, and touch them and not jump and uh, I'm hearing a lot of the same ideas well, beautiful. I think you described a a, a wonderful process of, of helping somebody like that uh, learn to increase their comfort zone by this incremental approach, and and uh, uh, that's what it takes is is that kind of uh, challenging yourself. And and if I can add a couple things to what you said, anything. Um, <laughs> um, so you know, in the psychology world, you know, for roughly about forty five years, we've. Uh, um, um, for anxiety disorders, it's, it's pretty clear that you need to do what we call exposure. So how do you get over anxiety? You don't just uh, um, sit around and do relaxation techniques and all that. That's all fine. But you have to expose yourself to incrementally, you just use the term incrementally, uh, incrementally to anxiety-provoking experiences so that you can um, begin to feel more comfortable. And if that exposure, holding hands, touching, so on, 
uh, can uh, take place for longer than 20 minutes. There, there seems to be a little bit of a, uh, a time factor here. So like if your exposures are only for, you know, holding somebody's hand for maybe five seconds or whatever, sometimes that actually provokes more anxiety uh, and doesn't it isn't really helpful. You got to hang in there longer. And uh, there's been some literature, uh, meaning uh, research, related to how uh, how long. So if you hang in there for longer than, let's say, 20 seconds, holding hands for 20 seconds, or looking at somebody's eye uh, into their eyes for longer than 20 seconds, that, that can be <laughs> a little challenging. Uh, uh, then uh, you you almost get to what we almost like the runners talk about the second wind you know yeah. that was a metaphor i thought about when you as you were saying it but keep going right and and so even if you think in terms of the second wind you know runners you know run for about uh for a little bit and they get tired tired i don't think i could do this anymore and all of a sudden boom they're they're all of a sudden through this wall that sometimes they call it a wall and uh that's when uh your uh pituitary gland actually uh, uh releases uh, another neurohormone called beta endorphin uh and all of a sudden you get this uh uh, analgesic effect. In other words, all the pain and discomfort that you were experiencing before uh, seem to be sort of numbed out and you feel like, hey, wow, all of a sudden I'm, I'm able to, to do this. So exposure requires hanging in there long enough so you can get to the, uh, to the second wind, uh, but not necessarily the wind, but the uh, uh, burst into a, uh, a little bit more comfortable territory. But you got to keep doing it. You can't just do it once a week, uh, you know, because there it's, oh, my God, I'll do it. This is too much. I can only do it once a week. No, to rewire your brain, you got to do it on a regular basis. The more you do it, the more likely to do it again. That's what uh, requires uh, uh, that, that type of behavior is what's required for neuroplasticity. How frequently does... Uh does a person need to engage in sort of an experience or an event or whatever you might call it? And how frequently in order to begin to rewire their brain? Well, there's no real hard line. Let's just agree in general. The more you do it, the more likely to do it again. So the more you practice something, the more likely to, to do it more easily. Uh, and we see that with just about anything, you know, uh, uh, whether it's, you know, you're a baseball player and you're swinging a bat or, or uh, speaking in French or, or whatever, the more, uh, the more you practice, the more likely to do it again with ease. Uh, you know, we were talking earlier when you were talking about being over at Columbia as a, as a student, uh, we, we would always say, you know, to study for an exam, what you got to do is study early and often, not cram the night before. Why? Because you're building in an infrastructure for a much more complex memory system. And that's what, what happens on multiple layers, not just the, uh, uh, the acquisition of information about, you know, whether it's a history exam or, or whatever, but uh, also uh, interpersonal communication. Uh, let's face it, uh, when you're communicating to another person, there's all, there's just a myriad of different nuances to uh, communicating with another person. And so the more you do it, the more nuances that you're attentive to. How is that developed in the brain? 
Well, think in terms of uh, our brains as being uh, composed of, oh, maybe 100 billion neurons. And every neuron has roughly about uh, 10,000 connections with other neurons. And those connections uh, uh, multiply as we acquire new skills. So the more connections in particular areas of the brain that, that uh, help support a particular uh, behavior, uh, uh, the more you do something, the more those connections uh, develop. And so uh, what we're talking about is a more elaborate connectivity in the brain supporting uh, whatever kind of behavior you're trying to develop. Now, here's the problem. Uh, when a person's really anxious, whether it's an interpersonal situation, let's say developing an intimate relationship like your client uh, was having difficulty developing um, a sense of comfort when uh, a woman were to touch him on the shoulder, uh, the more uh, he works with uh, uh, people uh, to help him increase his comfort uh, level, the more connectivity in his brain uh, to um, – uh, that develops to acquire that comfort level. Uh, the more nuances to the touch that he experiences that he's going to be paying attention to instead of, oh, my touch, as opposed to, oh, she touched me in this particular way or that particular way. That was a really nice touch. And the before you had this kind of touch. And you, you see what I mean? The more complexity is available to you with the more connectivity. How do you get the connectivity? By doing... Uh, uh, behaviors uh, uh, more often. That that makes sense. Uh, I think of like the Eskimo snow ice example, right? How many? Yeah. A, um, if you're in an environment where you're consistently doing something or dealing with something, there's a potential for a sort of more granular identification. Which, exactly. Which makes me lead sort of into a couple of questions. One is, you mentioned early on that in this podcast, you used a story about um, a person who had a, a an upbringing where they weren't really able to identify with their emotions. How does, especially for men, this is a, I think this is a problem. We talked a little bit about it before the podcast, just this idea that men, as we become socialized, as we become older, we're, we're taught in our culture to suppress uh, our emotions, not to cry. And so that becomes really, it becomes really difficult later on when we want to connect with a woman or another human being who might ha have a lot more uh, development around this area and then they feel insufficient because we can't communicate with them with our emotions. I read recently that most, or I heard recently that most, uh, I don't know about most, but it was saying that a lot of people can only identify, really identify three emotions in their body. Um, I think it was like anger, sadness, and maybe shame. I can't remember, I can't remember for sure, but how does a person begin to develop sort of more a granular identification of their emotions and is that total bullshit our guys uh do have a much higher propensity to connect with and identify emotions than the numbers that i'm throwing around or is this really a problem i'm just curious what your thoughts are as a researcher well well let's um uh, take the broad historical view to begin with uh, uh we could say that in um uh, western culture in general men are becoming um uh, some uh men are becoming much more attentive to their emotions. Um, in years past, before you were born, uh, maybe about five years, I can remember one particular uh, candidate for um, uh, high office, I think he was a vice presidential candidate, uh, actually teared up 
and that ended his campaign. Teared up in the early 70s. Uh, and now if you tear up and express emotion at that level, it's not seen as a negative. It's more like, oh, my God, that guy's got emotion. That's good. He's make, it makes him more tangible to me. Uh, so we're moving ahead, I, th I would say. Well, there are some regressive elements, and I mentioned them earlier. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, in general, <laughs> I would say that oftentimes it's two steps forward and one back, and, and sometimes the one back, like this recent political uh, phase that we're in right now, it's going to end. Um, you know, all the regressives that are kind of bigoted and, you know, and racist and all that, they're, you know, they're going to die out and, uh, at some point. I don't mean die in an actual, in other words, they're going to get more sophisticated because you only have to. With more exposure and more um, uh, uh, interrelationships uh, in the world, the world's getting so much smaller. And so that means that we're going to get more and more comfortable with other people, especially people with mixed race, for example, um, and so on, or people sitting there with another person and developing a comfort level. Let, let me, if you don't mind me even using a, a, another political example. So we here, here we have a vice president who literally said, I cannot sit in another room with a woman unless my wife is sitting there with me. Bizarre. Yes. I mean, you're talking about, you know, the the um, a, a cultural framework of roughly a century ago, you know, that men and women can't even be friends. Uh, uh, well, uh, many men now uh, have um, female friends and it doesn't have to be sexual. I have plenty of female friends. It's not sexual at all. Well, a century ago, that would be kind of weird. Well, we've moved ahead. Uh, you could say in general. So the macro view is an important one to take a look at. Uh, you know, certainly there are pockets of regressive activity and all that. However, as a culture, uh, you could say uh, we've been moving ahead because of the challenges that we're experiencing. Now let's get to the individuals. Uh, individuals make those transitions uh, around uh, uh, expanding their comfort zones by exposure. Um, uh, you know, uh, there are uh, areas of the country that are a little bit more tolerant than other areas, like, for example, um, um, the wide range of different sexual orientations uh, uh, were a little bit more easily expressed in an area of the country I lived in for quite some time, and that was the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, and, uh, well, gradually, uh, the rest of the country started getting a little bit more comfortable. Well, there are pockets of homophobics out there, certainly, but it was really the exposure to people of different uh, uh, expressions uh, that gradually wore down the resistance, the uncomfortable feelings that a person might have. So it's really about adaptation. We're incredibly adaptive creatures. And uh, the more we expand uh, our uh, incrementally, our comfort zones, the more dimensional uh, we become, the more nuanced, the more uh, receptive to uh, different types of communication uh, that, that we have. What do, you th what do you feel like is driving some of this regression? Well, right now, um, in terms of political uh, perspective, we have more people on the move 
on the planet in refugee status than any other time in history. Um, and it's only uh, going to uh, triple in size because of climate change. So whole island nations like the Maldives Islands, half of Bang Bangladesh uh, are going to um, um, uh, suffer catastrophic uh, encroachment of um, um, sea level and all that. So what what's going to happen is there are going to be more people on the move. And when there are people on the move, like, for example, more so in Europe than the United States, where we have a little bit of uh, movement, uh, you could say, that um, is exaggerated uh, across our southern border. Uh, but the more people on the move, you're going to get more of these sort of uh, so-called Brexits, <laughs> you know, more um, intolerant politicians that say, we don't want those people. Uh, and you see that all over Europe right now, you know, that uh, some of the right-wing politicians are like Le Pen and France and, and even in Sweden, you know, uh, or um, uh, in Italy, uh, certainly in the United States, the more of this, no, we don't want them, uh, um, uh, posturing um, uh, we have, the more inciting of the, let's say, our lower levels of consciousness <laughs> gets cultivated. <clears throat> and we might see a period of time uh, over the next um, 10 to 20 years where we have a little bit more of that because people are going to be on the move more simply because we've been messing up the planet so badly. Um, and uh, as a result, we're not going to move in a very organized sort of way. People are going to come across borders and, and so on. So uh, on a geopolitical level, it's partly related to the uh, movement of uh, refugees and uh, the changes in socioeconomic uh, um, uh, structures in various countries. Um, but on the other hand, on the positive side of things, um, uh, as we begin to discover that a lot of these extreme uh, reactions aren't really very effective, uh, they don't really help us uh, uh, adapt very well, uh, and actually uh, those extreme reactions create more havoc, uh, then we'll, uh, as, uh, and I'm not necessarily talking about Americans, I'm talking about um, people outside of our, our country as well, uh, realize that, wait a minute, we, we got to think uh, this through a little bit, have a little bit better uh, uh, understanding of how to uh, adapt to these uh, changes. Uh, just like our brain, our society uh, um, in general, and I'm talking globally, is going to learn uh, more sophisticated responses to challenges. Dating coach Chris Luna here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchristmas.com, create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community, and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, 
check out our live coaching programs on our website. Craft Charisma Live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows, attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. Yeah, all kinds of things come up. I, I think that you're right. But when I think about this, I think I feel like there's even more things. It's the technological changes that are happening um, that are just sort of changing people's jobs or the value of their contribution to society and, and the economic impact, the trade changes and shift. And like if somebody has a factory in some part of a, a more rural part of the U.S. and that, that was their only job and now it shifts to another country or like the, the idea that um, media or social media has allowed, made it more difficult for people to isolate themselves and, and their viewpoints and perspectives and that challenging of sort of their worldview. Like all these things I feel like induce stress or or they create fear and i feel like so much of the changes that or some of this um sort of response that you're describing is is just fear induced and right i right. I, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who writes for the new york times when trump first first announced and he goes what do you think and at that time everybody was laughing and now it sounds when i say this it's going to sound like I, i'm i'm just like saying this because it makes me look smart it's not it's not why i'm telling the story i'm uh and someday maybe i'll have him come on the podcast and talk about the dynamics of some of this stuff and i said i i think at that time every commentator was like laughing at trump um just about every major commentator and he goes what do you think um what, what do you think uh, about trump and i said well um jeb bush was pulling f- uh, first at the time and trump was in the low like teens 13 percent or something and and I said, I think if he keeps saying what he says, he's saying he's going to win. And he goes, why would you think that? And I said, because I know what a lot of these people think, and he's telling them exactly what they think. And I know because I used to run political campaigns, and we'd have to do polling. And a lot of these things were based off fear. And there's some other reasons, too. At some of the time, I was like, I feel like Jeb Bush um, has a body of work and a sense of morality where, like, he knows something is wrong or bad. It won't go there. He's still trying to figure out, you have to figure out how do you appease the people at the base, the people who on the, the left or right, who are going to actually give money and put up signs and like knock on people's doors and drag their, their uh, neighbors out to vote. Like you have to figure out, get those people engaged. And, and um, what Trump was doing was he was like uh, tapping into a lot of these fears from, whether it's changes in population or changes in technology or changes in, in uh, trade and the distribution of labor or um, media, these ideas that were being, we could no longer hide from. Um, so yeah. I, right. I, do you, do, I, I agree with you. And, and uh, very clearly, uh, uh, in fact, a lot of recent research uh, uh, has, has demonstrated it, that what he was doing was uh, uh, tapping into fear and um, tapping away from complex thought. And so let me even put a neuroscience spin on this because there has been some neuroscience related to this, not necessarily related to Trump, but but uh, who's receptive to that kind of message? You know, when he announced as he's coming down the escalator and all that, you know, the Mexicans are sending their worst and their rapists and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, he was uh, uh, hitting our, our uh, 
smoke alarm or fear button or, or uh, smoke detector. Um, uh, and uh, so there's been some interesting research related to um, uh, self-described uh, right-wingers versus self-described left-wingers. And I don't mean way out on the fringes. I mean in general. When I say right or left wingers, I mean, let's say Republicans versus Democrats. And it turns out that people that are more receptive to those kinds of Trumpian messages uh, have less activity going on in their prefrontal cortex, more activity going on in their amygdala. And the amygdala is like the smoke alarm, the threat detector and all that. What is the prefrontal cortex? The prefrontal cortex looks at the nuances. Like, for example, wait a minute, wait a minute, you said make America great. Well, you mean to say that nobody else is interested in that? Well, how, what do you mean by make America great? Uh, in other words, looking for more complexity, more explanation, whereas the amygdala-driven people are saying, yeah, that's right, we want to make America. That means when I was in control, yeah. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a knee-jerk reaction, a yes or no, instead of more complex thought. And so uh, right now, I was mentioning this global kind of uh, effect uh, that's occurring right now, whether it's Le Pen in France or whoever, uh, that amygdala-driven um, uh, activity is more like a knee-jerk response, less complexity of thought, and let's face it, uh, that's what happened um, in a, in a much more uh, um, frightening way in the 1930s with the rise of fascism, uh, because a lot of those Mussolinis and Hitlers and Francos and they were tapping into uh, this fear-based uh, uh, way. And in fact, uh, uh, a great example of of that is that uh, you know they needed an external enemy all the time, you know. Uh, and so what? What do you see with a lot of these uh, uh, reactionaries is the enemy is somebody other than us. And that means they might be coming across our borders or they might not have the whatever. Uh, they're not like us. Um, uh, so, yeah, there's a there's a bit of a neuroscience to this. And there's a lot of interesting research related to this global political environment. There's an interesting series of articles, I forgot the guy's name at Yale, that talks about the coding that takes place in the messaging out of the current administration. One of the things that comes up as you, you said that is, it appears like when I'm under stress, I'm capable of less sophisticated thought. Right. And so I just assumed like that's part of it, right? You induce, if you can induce a group of people with fear, then um, it's going to resonate more with them. Exactly. And so when when you uh, when you're stressed, remember we were talking about right, left hemisphere, and all that. You get all avoidant and withdraw and all that. And the only thing that you react to is angry burst. You know, yeah, get them out of here. Let's build a wall. You know, some quick, crude reaction instead of a much more sophisticated way of. Uh, um, responding uh, to the challenges in front of you. Uh, and this is really interesting to me, right? Because I, I mean, I have a lot of great friends who are conservatives um, and I become much more liberal over the years. And, and uh, at one time I used to run uh, campaigns for Republicans in my early twenties. 
but I end up voting for Obama and I've become just, you live in New York City, as you said, and you get exposed to a wide range of different types of people and different cultures and different ways of thinking about the world, whether you want to or not. And it's going to change you as a human being. <laughs> and exactly. uh, which, which is essentially what happened. I was never a wild, crazy um, conservative, but I, I was more of a moderate leaning, right. And as I've living in New York city, I just, I've changed. And, and so one of the things that I've, I've learned is like that when we're, stressed or that we have fear, we become more conservative. And when we feel safe and comfortable, oftentimes we can process more complex ideas and and more nuance. And, uh, and I don't think all conservatives or all liberals fall under these like two categories. I know some liberals are not very sophisticated and I know some uh, conservatives that are pretty sophisticated and nuanced, but as a general, uh, a general idea, like I find this to be true. And yeah, that's a very good point, uh, and and it relates to to what we're experiencing globally, uh, because people are stressed because of the movement of all these people, and they don't know what to deal with, how to deal with it, and they they react in in black and white sort of ways, um, and again, in terms of the, how the brain operates, uh, it, it's a lot harder to to. Uh, create activity in your prefrontal cortex because it's a much more advanced part of the brain. Uh, requires uh, a certain degree of, of um, comfort. Uh, as you said, um, people, when they're comfortable, are a little bit more uh, attentive to the uh, complexities, the nuances and all that. When they're really stressed out, they get really reactive, meaning they get more amygdala-based, more subcortical-based. In our classes, we say when feel, people feel good, they expand. When they feel bad, they contract. And yep, uh, and we see exactly. that we see that in eye contact, with body language, with the amount of space somebody will take up. When they feel good, they'll take up more space, whether it's in their apartment or out in some singles event. And that's true whether they put their bag someplace or they move their arms a little bit more and are more expressive or they laugh a little louder. Um, we see this in this manifestation, all kinds of different. Uh, different ways. You could show it in, in someone's art or work, how, how likely they are to share it with other people and expose it to other people. If they feel good about themselves, they're more likely to. If they don't, they're more likely to keep it to themselves. Like uh, It can be true about food. It can be true. Like We see this in all kinds of, I see this in all kinds of different ways. And that sort of leads me into um, the next question. The Brain Bible, you talk about these like five factors, these seeds that contribute to brain health. You talk about sleep and exercise and education and diet and sort of the social components. Um, can you sort of expand on this for people who are listening who want to figure out how they can improve their brain health and as a consequence of that, their overall health. Sure. Uh, so um, the um, uh, concept is that you've got to practice those five elements on a regular basis, not just one, but all five. And um, um, the seeds mnemonic uh, that... Um, uh, codes those in. My my wife uh, was the one that came up with the. That was smart. Uh, <laughs> yeah, very smart. Uh, <laughs> Uh, mnemonic. Uh, I was kind of struggling around. How do I come in? She said, "How about seeds?" Well, it's great. Uh, and that so you plant, 
and cultivate seeds on a regular basis, you're going to be happier, more durable, less anxious, and by the way, you're going to live longer. But you got to do all five. And it gets down even down to your chromosomal level. In other words, that we know that people that have bad quality social relationships, their telomeres shrink. I don't know if you know what telomeres are, but they're the caps on the ends of your chromosomes. They're sort of like a biomarker for aging and illness. And so uh, it's amazing that in the field of social uh, neuroscience, we find that uh, even bad quality relationships can uh, make you more uh, uh, vulnerable to genetic uh, imperfections. In other words, uh, damage, uh, mutation, and so on. So the caps on the ends of your chromosomes, wow, we're down to that level in science now? So it's amazing. So each one of these uh, five factors are critical. If you don't get them on a regular basis, your telomeres shrink, your brain doesn't function very well, your immune system doesn't function very well. And so let's just briefly go over them. I just mentioned the social interaction. So having good quality, supportive social uh, um, experience on a regular basis, critically important. Exercise, probably the most powerful uh, and critical thing that we, we do. In fact, the, the World Health Organization just uh, put out a big study that um, uh, was the result of looking at over 200,000 people. And so if you're not getting a regular dose of aerobic exercise, that's worse than smoking. You know, so it's well beyond the cliche now that sitting is the new smoking. Now we know that not exercising, and I'm talking about getting an aerobic boost on a regular basis, is worse than smoking. And so getting an aerobic boost every day for roughly about 30 minutes, critically important, uh, not only in, increase your uh, longevity and all that, but it's probably the best antidepressant that we have, better than any of these uh, uh, antidepressant medications, which I could go on and on about how they're not as effective as we once thought. But exercise is the most powerful thing. Education is the second E. So learning something new, and usually it has to do with learning something you're totally not familiar with, uh, getting out of your comfort zone uh, to learn something that, God, that's unfamiliar. And if you, if you learn it with a little, uh, uh, let's say, a moderate degree of discomfort, that's when you really learn it. And so what are you doing? You're building the infrastructure of, uh, of what we call cognitive reserve. So later in life, you can lose more neurons without looking like you lost much because you have more connectivity there. But in general, having that kind of connectivity makes you much more adaptive because you don't have these simplistic, easy, quick responses like we were talking about before. You know, like build a wall, duh, you know, that, that's quick reaction, that's simplistic thought rather than complex thought. Okay, diet. Well, here's a major problem that we're experiencing in the Western world right now. We're eating a bunch of junk and it's killing us. We lead the world, when I say we, I'm talking now Americans, lead the world in obesity right now. A good, uh, almost three, quarter of us, three quarters of us are overweight. And uh, fat cells aren't just these nice little jiggly things that make us self-conscious and all that. They actually leach out uh, what we call pro-inflammatory cytokines, not to get too complicated here. Basically, it just causes chronic inflammation. And as your fat cells increase, your brain actually shrinks. Wow. Really amazing science right now. Why, why is we that? Know, 
Well, think of fat cells as nature's way of storing energy. So, you know, prior to 11,000 years ago, we were hunter-gatherers. We moved roughly about 10 miles a day. We didn't always have food available to us. The way we evolved as a species was develop all these capabilities of storing energy, and one of the ways of storing energy is fat cells. Well, obviously, uh, hunter-gatherers didn't grow the kind of fat cells that we've been growing lately. Uh, they grow small amounts. Uh, well, now we're just um, uh, expanding on those fat cells so much so that it's now not just fat cells that uh, are loading up, but they're now decaying. So think of fat cells as decaying energy that that uh, releases um, um, these chemicals we call pro-inflammatory cytokines that were are messengers for inflammation. So what? Bottom line is just to get to the point: chronic inflammation makes our mood fogged out, low, and our cognitive ability, our ability to think clearly goes down. And the more fat cells we have, the more likely to get demented later in life. And so on the way there, you get depressed, you can't think clearly, you make these snap judgments, you know, like we were talking about before, you're not thinking clearly. Um, and uh, so we've got a, a, a pandemic, not an epidemic, we have a pandemic right now and so as a result we're creating uh also all these lifestyle related diseases like uh diabetes type 2 which has got a, a very strong relationship with cognitive dysfunction and depression so the more depressed you are the more likely to tumble into diabetes type 2 the more diabetes type 2 uh, you develop the more likely to get depressed and earlier dementia and neurologists are now calling Alzheimer's diabetes type 3. So if you want to get on the fast track, get diabetes, grow extra fat cells, don't move much, and get diabetes type 2, you're going to have cognitive dysfunction later in life. But on the way there, you're not going to think clearly, and you're not going to be able to carry a positive mood. Now, the last uh, uh, letter is sleep. And we've also got a problem. Uh, we've got a sleep deficit, uh, uh, partly because people are staying up a whole lot later and they're looking at computer screens, looking at light, tricking your brain that it's, it's daytime outside, um, and uh, also adding in various um, substances that screw up the uh, healthy sleep architecture. And some of them are prescribed by uh, medical uh, uh, professionals that screw up the sleep architecture. And what I mean by that is there are, there are stages of sleep that really need to be um, uh, uh, gone through uh, every night. So you spend about a third of your life asleep and you really want to make sure you get each stage of sleep. And the most, one of the more critical ones is slow wave sleep, stage four sleep. And we've been wiping it out a lot with all these uh, chemicals like uh, the benzodiazepines, alcohol, uh, even marijuana. Um, and so as a result, we don't get good stage four sleep. We can't consolidate memories. We're blue the next day. We're more likely to eat more. Uh, we can't think very clearly. So all these factors need to work together. Uh, and uh, so whatever you're doing, um, whether or not you're, you know, trying to uh, succeed at your new job or have uh, – uh, vibrant and, and satisfying relationships, you need to take care of yourself. These are foundational factors. 
you can't just think yourself through this. You've got to be able to uh, take care of the foundation. Uh, our bodies and our brains are all, you know, our brains are part of our bodies. Our mind is created by our brains and our bodies. And there are multiple feedback loops. And I describe these in my new book called Mind, Brain, Gene. Uh, and so this is really the new frontier of healthcare that we've been talking about uh, is how all these feedback loops, the immune system, the brain, uh, the, the mental operating networks all work together. I, I think it's awesome. Um, I mean, I've definitely had personal experience with some of the stuff and it's one of the reasons I've shifted so much into health. I, things like sleep, um, living in New York City, there's a lot of streetlights. And there's a, light, a lot of light from the city. I didn't realize I was having migraines. And it wasn't until I got blackout curtains and blocked out the light that I realized it was because I had basically it was like having the lights on all the time. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, exactly. and that was affecting my mood. In addition to affecting, giving me headaches, it was affecting my mood. And I felt tired all the time. And I could not figure out why. And, uh, and then one day it occurred to me, I'm like, maybe these lights have something to do with it. And, uh, yeah, it's 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 funny how these and people I don't people don't think about this. I remember um, after this happened, flying home to California and visiting family, and so when my family recently had a baby and his wife left the lights on like all night so that they could check on the baby through the like with a camera, and I'm like, you're gonna make the fucking baby crazy. <laughs> you're like if you it's like you're, it's a, it's a form of torture to leave the lights on all the time. You're literally gonna make you're gonna make her crazy. Um, yeah. Uh, but sleep, uh, I, I definitely connected. It had a massive impact on, on my life. Um, diet. I, at one point I tried to do one of these exotic diets. I gave myself a breakdown. I don't know about exotic. There's a lot of people it functions well for, but I tried to do, um, a vegan diet on the fifth day. I started to shake and started to, um, slur my speech and started to, um, stutter and just started having all kinds of crazy thoughts as, um, like, I mean, I had a lot of underlying stressors at the time, which just sort of like, that was like the catalyst, but, um, the diet was the catalyst. It, like, uh, my body didn't react very well to it. And yeah, if you're, if you're, if you're carrying on a vegan diet, you really got to know where you're going to get your nutrients, especially uh, protein. You can't not have protein in your diet. Uh, and some vegans are good at, uh, 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 making sure the proteins in their diet, but if if you're just doing uh, a sort of a general, I uh, you know I'm not going to have any kind of uh, animal product whatsoever. Well, you better make sure that you get enough complex uh, um, amino acids that that can together create um, uh, proteins because we do need protein. It doesn't have to be animal protein, but the vegans are at a loss. Uh, to, I, I don't mean a loss, I should say, uh, uh, it's a greater challenge to um, make sure that you get uh, adequate protein. And if you don't, you run into symptoms like you described. Yeah, I mean, I, and I have a lot of friends who do veganism and function very well on it. Uh, either I did it wrong or my body's not predisposed to it, but either way, <laughs> um, I'm telling that story now because just it really reaffirmed the importance of diet and brain function for me um also the, the social component as you described i know as especially as men um we can have a tendency to isolate ourselves as an entrepreneur i know there's periods where i've isolated myself because i was running my business and and um, a lot of people were working freelance and 
who are involved in the business or working working from home, working remotely. And I had a job where I didn't have to actually interact with people, even though it's really funny. I had a job that taught people how to connect and it caused me to disconnect. <laughs> and, uh, and it just sort of in a, we- a weird, weird way. Um, but I, yeah, I, these things that you're saying, I really, um, I love the fact that you've been doing this for 40 years and, and uh, you've thought a lot about the research, but I also connect with them just like on a, from an experiential level, because I, I find that when my brain is functioning the best, I'm doing a lot of these things. So um, I had a chance to look at some of your work, but I haven't had a chance to read your new book. And I'm super excited uh, to pick up Mind Brain Gene and, and flip through it and, and read through it. Um, oh, I know. There's one other question that I wanted to ask. And that was earlier you talked about um, sort of building these neural pathways or building these um, these networks of neural connections. Um, and I hope I'm phrasing that right. But sometimes we have traumas, right? And when we have traumas, uh, you mentioned earlier in the podcast that uh, the example of, of somebody who had a childhood that didn't really have a lot of emotion involved, so they can't remember things. And I remember that as a, I realized that as, as a kid that like I tended to remember things that there was a lot of emotion around. Traumas can be very emotional. So how does a person begin to depreciate some of these neural connections if they have a lot of them, right? Because I know so so many conversations I've had with people where they've had traumas and then things trigger them. What does a person do that when they have, there's lots of different experiences that sort of trigger a memory that affects their mental or emotional health? How do they depreciate these? These uh, connections. Yeah. So let, let me, uh, to answer that question, uh, let me uh, take just a few minutes to describe how memory isn't just one thing. We have multiple memory systems and uh, um, meaning long-term memory that is and some of these uh, uh, types of long-term memory are what we call implicit memory or non-declarative memory in other words they're like emotional memory or movement memory and so they're non-conscious and um, uh, whereas we also have this larger big category of conscious based memories, you know, like you and I might remember this conversation later and, oh, yeah, I remember that. I should have said this and, oh, I'm, we missed that point or whatever. These are declarative memories or we call it explicit memory. Well, you know, with trauma, uh, oftentimes what happens later on is these two memory systems get dysregulated from one another. In other words, they don't work together very well. And so you could be walking along on the street and all of a sudden hear pop, pop, pop from some motorcycle backfiring, you might feel gunfire before you think gunfire. The feeling gunfire is the implicit memory system, the non-conscious. The explicit memory system is you know, the where, the what, the, how you describe it and all that. So that person that hears the motorfi- motorcycle backfiring might have just come back from, you know, combat in Afghanistan or whatever. He felt gunfire before he could think gunfire. So he hit the ground and uh, then he came back up and he started saying, what, what, what was that? The what was that is the, the uh, cortex catching up. It, it goes, it, uh, um, well, part, part of this has to do with the de- like the development of the brain, right? The evolution of the brain. Oh, yeah, the co- right. Co- it's, the sub- it's subcortical areas, the amygdala. It's the, it's the fast track to the amygdala. In fact, right there in New York City, there's a really great researcher that you might want to interview. Uh, at, he's a researcher at NYU. His name is Joe Ledoux. 
uh, Joseph Ledoux, and he's done a huge amount of research on the amygdala. Uh, and in fact, he's where I learned about the fast track and the slow track, or he calls it the low road and the high road. Um, anyway, he's a really a character, really a interesting guy. In fact, he even plays in a, a musical group, uh, kind of Zydeco rock music, uh, in New York called the Amygdaloids. I've, I I might have heard him. Yeah, he's a, he's a really interesting guy and a great neuroscientist. And uh, anyway, what I just described, the fast track and the slow track, uh, really is quite relevant to um, uh, you're mentioning trauma. Uh, and what I'm talking about is, is um, uh, experiencing a flashback, let's say, from trauma. But I might add one more thing that is, I think, really important. Um, uh, and I'd, I'd like all your listeners to kind of um, um, get a sense of this. I think in, in my field, in mental health and in, even in pop culture in general, we use the word trauma too often. We pathologize our experience far more. In my field, I think we use these diagnostic terms uh, to such a degree that people that uh, uh, have been so-called diagnosed feel that there's, they're stuck with the diagnosis, so to speak. And what I'm perpetually doing is trying to normalize experience and depathologize. Why? Because it gives people more hope. You know, mm. I mean, th this whole idea that there's sanity versus insanity, I mean, who's totally sane, really? It's a silly idea. You know, we're all a little goofy, and that makes the world interesting. The question is how out of control you are, uh, how, how effective you are, how adaptive you are, and how responsive and compassionate you are to other, other human beings. That's, that's really more relevant. So um, in, in, um, in the world of healthcare, care, uh, the, the less we pathologize with all these terms like trauma and all that, uh, the better I think uh, uh, it is for people because they have more hope that they can rewire their brain to become more effective and adaptive in the world. How, how do you think it should be phrased? Because basically what, what I'm getting at is like there's shit that happens to us over the course of our life and, and if we can't figure out how to work through it, then it inhibits us from being able to connect with other people and connect with ourselves and connect with our emotions and do a lot of the higher functioning things that you're talking about. Right. So, so let's take that phrase that, or the, those couple sentences, uh, that you just expressed. You said that, that make us inhibits us, uh, to be able to act, uh, appropriately. Let's just say it makes it more difficult. Okay. Rather yeah. than inhibits. Okay. Yeah. And so that it, since it makes it more difficult, that means we got to learn how to make it less uh, likely that we're going to respond in an inappropriate way where there's uh, 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 danger that we're responding to that's really not danger. Uh, and uh, if, if you think in terms of uh, uh, abuse and neglect as a child and you later grow up and, and now you're looking for, not necessarily consciously, but unconsciously, not I should say non-consciously, um, uh, abuse and danger. Uh, you've got to learn uh, that learn, and, and this is a slow learning process. That having um, positive relationships uh, is not dangerous, and in fact, it's it's nurturing. But that's a slow learning process, 
it's not something that all of a sudden you're going to have a thought and you go, yeah, really, I know this is a really good relationship. And ding, I'm back now. No, it takes a while. you got to hang in there to be uh, learn how to be comfortable in really non-threatening kinds of situations. And that's what rewires the brain. I, I want to sort of run this back by you so I understand part of what's what your thought process is. So you're saying that what I think you're implying is that by pathologizing something or like naming it, it like we can, or being diagnosed, diagnosed with something, we begin to attach it maybe to our identity or ego or worldview. And it makes it harder to, maybe that creates more neural pathways or whatever, but it becomes harder to sort of disconnect and untangle that. Is that Exactly. Yeah. And you come up with all these reasons why, my God, my brain's broken or or I've been uh, I've been traumatized and I'm never going to recover from it. And uh, or, um, uh, you know, I was healthy and now I'm no longer healthy. Uh, and um, uh, we know uh, that uh, a lot of people that have been horribly tra- traumatized uh, develop uh, into remarkable human beings. Uh, because they step out of their comfort zone, they they uh, develop new comfort levels in situations that are really not dangerous anymore, despite the fact that they experience horrible uh, tragedies um, uh, before in life. Uh, and so there's hope. I mean, we're pretty adaptive uh, creatures. And so uh, there's another aspect that I, I'd like to just briefly mention, and that is this uh, um, he could say a, a misnomer around having bad genes. Uh, and it turns out that uh, uh, all that uh, silliness around having bad genes, like having a depression gene or an anxious gene and all that, it was a bunch of nonsense. We don't have that many genes to have that many disorders. And in fact, the because of the Human Genome Project, uh, we discovered that we didn't have as many genes as we thought we have. We thought we'd have about 100,000 genes. And so what's a gene? Uh, well, nobody can totally agree on it, but generally speaking, it's a section of your DNA that codes for protein. And do you know what other species has the same number of genes? In other words, the section of their DNA that codes for protein? No. The earthworm. <laughs> Earthworm. What? So do you think that earthworms underneath your feet, you know, in their little holes and are going to psychiatric clinics and getting Prozac and, you know, and being diagnosed to have panic disorder and, and all that? Do they, are there that many genes that make them have that many disorders? No. These diagnostic terms are just convenient ways of describing behaviors. There's no depression gene. Let me just describe one of them briefly uh, to sum it all up. We once, not we, but some people thought that there was such a thing called a depression gene and it was uh, hypothesized to be uh, specifically uh, called the short version of the serotonin transporter gene. And it turns out that if you have the short version of the serotonin transporter gene and you experience a traumatic childhood, you are more likely to become depressed later on. So that's why some people thought, oh, it's a depression gene. However, if you have the short version of the serotonin transporter gene and you have really good nurturance, really uh, secure attachment, you're actually better off than a person that doesn't have the short version of the uh, serotonin transporter gene. In other words, you're more adaptive and and have more complex and, and satisfying human relationships. Same gene. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I, a couple of things come up for me. One is, 
I was having a conversation in the last couple of days with a, a professor out of a university in Arizona, and we've been friends since she did this podcast, and we talk every week just about, and she was saying that, she was talking about people who argue for, try to use genetics as a, as a way to support this idea of like race. And she's just like, it's bullshit. She goes, you know, there's more genetic diversity in, uh, she described a specific type of penguin, I think in Antarctica or somewhere that are standing next to each other from the same, like, I don't know what you'd call it, herd or whatever. There's more genetic diversity between those two penguins than all of humanity. <laughs> and, exactly. uh, um, it, and it was really fascinating. Your earthworm example is another it's a really interesting example. In, in fact, I, I, uh, in my book, um, Mind, Brain, Gene, I kind of get into uh, this uh, broad subject that we're just now talking about. Um, uh, and also, uh, like millions of other people, I've sent you know genetic samples to these uh, organizations like National Geographic and 23andMe and all that. And it's just fascinating to take a look at going back in time and how uh, you know you and I might be. Uh, uh, thinking that we're part of totally different eth ethnic groups. Um, uh, but if you go back in time, there's so much diversity and, and how we've adapted. And, you know, we all came out of Africa uh, and we just proliferated all over the planet. And there's so much uh, both commonality and diversity. And interestingly, the, the people in Africa actually have more genetic diversity than all of us that burst out of Africa. Assuming that you're not an African American or you're an African, you, you follow what I mean. Those of us that are Caucasian and Asian and, and so on actually are more alike one another than the people in Africa, which is fascinating. Kind of like the penguin example that you were talking about. Wow, that's that is fascinating. What are there any theories on why that is? Well, you know that. Uh, uh, um, the adaptation that occurred uh, roughly in the uh, previous, uh, let's say, 100 to 90,000 years ago after Homo sapiens sapiens uh, went across the Sinai and into what is now called the Middle East and throughout uh, Eurasia, uh, uh, they were somewhat similar to one another when they burst out. We, they, meaning uh, maybe you and I, I don't know what ethnic group or a race you are, but uh, um, my genes uh, uh, are more similar to people thousands of miles away because we are part of the same group that left. So it's, it's a, basically a branch further up on the tree. Uh, yeah. Uh, and so th that group that left compared to the uh, the many groups that didn't leave. That makes sense. <laughs> it's fascinating. And so, you know, we're, we're busy always saying, uh, well, African-Americans as if they're all one, you know, particular ethnic group. You know, I, I talk about this a lot with a, a good friend of mine who is an African-American, you know, that, geez, I'm, I'm really fascinated by the, all the different types of Africans. You know, there was so much diversity there. But anyway, that, that's way off in this world of, uh, that we're dis discovering with uh, genetics and epigenetics and how, uh, you know, whatever genetic pattern that you might have uh, uh, is rather malleable to some degree based on lifestyle. That's why these seeds factors are so important. We're now turning on genes that we don't want to be turning on, that grow extra fat cells, create chronic inflammation, all these kinds of factors that we were talking about before. That's why these uh, foundational health factors are so fundamentally important. Yeah, a couple of things I want to ask about and maybe make one comment. It's uh, it's funny, I did the same thing with Ancestry and I was shocked at the diversity. 
I mean, I had some German ancestry and some Spanish ancestry. I think Syrian. There's like 14 things that popped up, but I had like one percent of like a region that that also included Nigeria, <laughs> and it was something I, I just didn't expect. Um, yeah, well, remember, you're you know, we all came from Africa, so why wouldn't you have some Nigerian? To, maybe not necessarily Nigerian. It could have been, uh, you know, Ethiopian or or whatever. Um, but. Um, uh, and, and by the way, you probably, I don't know if ancestry uh, codes in for Neanderthal, but roughly speaking, on average, most of Homo sapiens sapiens have a roughly about 2.5% uh, Neanderthal. Yeah, I don't remember. I don't remember seeing that, but I just I I was shocked by some of the stuff that came up. I wish I couldn't find I can't find my phone, but it was I think there was like fourteen or fifteen different things that popped up, and uh, yeah, Native American, um, and then uh, Native like Andean. Like there's a few, just a bunch of different places that popped up, and I, I was definitely surprised. One of the things I wanted to ask you is there's been some research that I've seen in on the news around this idea that we can pass our I'm going to go back to traumas, but we can pass some of our um, the switches that are on or off in our genes to our offspring. Do you know where I'm yeah. going with this? Yeah, that that's a uh, um, that's an area that is just so fascinating to me, and I tried to describe that to some degree in the book Mind Brain Gene, uh, and especially related to let's say trauma. Um, and uh, we're just now taking a look at that, maybe through. Uh, uh, let's say, for example, you might have seen uh, in the last couple of weeks, there was a, um, a couple studies related to um, uh, fathers who have been traumatized later might contribute to uh, their yet-to-be-born sons who might have a little bit more anxiety. And, well, that's uh, an epigenetic uh, transgenerational uh, transmission. Um, and uh, uh, that is uh, just uh, a dramatic, dramatic development. Uh, so there have been multiple studies that relate to, uh, uh, let's say, diet uh, and um, famine. So w one of the most celebrated studies was called the Dutch Hunger uh, Winter. Uh, and uh, real briefly, uh, and then we probably want to sum things up, but uh, real briefly, uh, during World War II, toward the end of World War II, the Nazis uh, blockaded Holland uh, uh, and uh, created a huge famine. So foodstuffs couldn't go in. So those babies who were in utero during the first trans, uh, trimester uh, later now, 70 years later, are suffering for greater, from greater degrees of uh, obesity and diabetes type 2. And that was one of the early examples of epigenetic change. In other words, uh, their mothers uh, were experiencing a famine at the time, so they changed their bodies. I mean, not consciously, of course, but their bodies adapted to famine-like conditions by storing fat cells. Remember, fat cells are uh, nature's way of storing energy uh, in uh, anticipation of another famine. Well, of course, they didn't have another famine. What they had was uh, constant availability of food. Um, so that's another example. So you could have uh, it at a food uh, metabolic rate uh, transmission. You could have it at trauma-like. Uh, you could also have it related to um, uh, these major catastrophes occurring in 
in uh, the world, you know, let's say the genocides, like I, I'm an Armenian in uh, both sides. And uh, my family uh, were horribly massacred by the Ottomans. Um, in fact, that's why I'm an American, because my family, the ones that survived, and many of them didn't, uh, experienced this terrible trauma. And, you know, uh, well, you know, Holocaust victims, same kind of thing. Uh, now, what degree of transmission uh, uh, might there be for the Holocaust victims, Rwanda, Armenians, uh, uh, Bosnians, whoever, uh, might there be? Uh, well, that's a whole uh, area of study many of us are looking at, wondering about, because could I be more easily traumatized um, uh, having experienced the same kind of thing that you have experienced? Uh, it might be that I might be more prone than you are because of this transmission. However, on the other hand, we initially started talking about um, trauma and uh, overactivity of, of um, uh, the stress systems and, and all that and attachment. Now, uh, let me just give you a brief example of, of how that didn't occur. So, you know, I've done a I'm, I continue to travel all over the world giving talks and all that. And when I was uh, in um, the Eastern Mediterranean and I had a gun uh, pointed at my forehead for an extended period of time uh, by all people but a Turkish soldier. Well, that's symbolically pretty significant for me. I didn't uh, respond in any kind of traumatic way. And it, and it went on for the longest while. I was uh, very uh, attentive to what he wanted me to do. I made sure that he didn't know that or he didn't think that I was going to grab his gun or anything like that. Uh, and uh, I got out of there. Now it's an interesting story. I wasn't traumatized. I am a very, very fortunate person to have two very nurturing parents, a good family support, a lot of great experiences in my life. Later in life as a psychologist, I saw a man in his 50s who had a gun pointed at him for 10 seconds and he developed PTSD. Why? Well, he was horribly traumatized by his father while he was growing up. His father was an out of control uh, drunk. They used to beat him up all the time. And so his stress response system wasn't as durable as mine. Now, I am the genetic, you could say, uh, ancestor of people horribly traumatized. He wasn't. But I am a person incredibly lucky not to have insecure attachment. I've had very fortunate to have secure attachment. You know, I'm, I'm fairly durable. I've been in some pretty awkward you know, areas of the world and, and all that. And, and so I'm a very lucky guy. He wasn't a very lucky guy. He was more easily traumatized than I was. And I experienced the so-called trauma, the so-called near-death experience, somebody with a gun pointed at you for a longer period of time than he. So this whole idea of transgenerational transmission is, is very complex. It's multi-layered. It's not just you pass on an anxiety gene or you tweak it or whatever. Well, I could uh, have uh, or I could be a, a carrier of a tweaked gene, so to speak, uh, related to my ancestral past. But I was very fortunate in my early experience so that I'm, I'm fairly durable. 
you know, uh, I'm not as easily frightened. I, you know, mountain climbed and traveled in war zones and all that. I'm, you know, you could say that uh, I've become more cautious in recent years, but still, uh, this idea of transgenerational transmission um, uh, is is an area of study that we're yet looking at, but it's not as simple as you pass on some bad gene and then that person's going to be more anxious. That was probably lo more long-winded than you wanted. Well, no, it's great. Well, the other thing I've heard throughout this podcast is um, even if that were the case, as human beings, we have the ability to nurture the health of our brains and, and influence these these things right so exactly exactly I'm, I'm very glad that you you pulled that together and that's that's the whole point uh, you know people that have experienced terrible things early in their life sometimes called adverse childhood experiences that that um, a big study now worldwide uh, that uh, generated out of the system I used to work in uh, you have multiple layers of, of adverse childhood experiences you could be a pretty viable amazing person later in life uh, it doesn't mean you're broken it's what you do with it how you adapt we are far more plastic or malleable uh, adaptive uh, than than uh, this medical model would have us believe you know like bad genes or messed up brain chemistry or whatever you can change your brain chemistry by your diet and what you do this is awesome any sort of last tips, suggestions, resources for people who are listening to this and, and they want to improve the health of their brain and their ability to deal with some of the stuff that comes up in life? Well, I, uh, uh, the main uh, theme, uh, and you identified it, uh, is that I want people to think that there's hope. Uh, that uh, whatever you might have experienced uh, uh, in your earlier life or maybe even just recently, uh, that there, we are incredibly, incredibly adaptive creatures. And uh, uh, we, unfortunately, also in recent years have adopted many uh, not so healthy behaviors like eating a lot of simple carbohydrates and not moving much or or over pathologizing and all that we we could go either direction we can get uh, healthy or we can get more unhealthy uh, and it really re uh, requires some initiative uh, some getting out of your comfort zone uh, uh, whether it be doing the five healthy behaviors on a regular basis when you don't feel like it so that you eventually feel like it or just saying, now I'll get around to it when I feel like it. Well, you got to do what you don't feel like doing so that you can have a better life. Dr. John Arden, this has been incredible. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. It's been a pleasure. And if you're listening to this, you want to learn more about Dr. Arden and everything that he does and his his books, all his research. We're going to put some links on the Craft Christmas website and within the description of this podcast so that you can find out about him more easily. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Oh, I enjoyed it. You take care of yourself. It's dating coach Chris Thona here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I do to get them on the show for you. Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, 
go to the Craft Christmas website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.